0: let's pray. God, first of all, this morning I want to pray for Rance Moore and uh, Faith Outreach Church. Lord, I want to pray for Rance that he is uh, undone by the word, that he is disassembled and then rebuilt and refilled and emptied and uh, this ongoing uh, organic sort of Event is happening in his life as he is walking through the word with you and that the Holy Spirit is opening his eyes to his sin, to his frailties, to his weaknesses, Um, or that he is being broken over those sort of things and that he is uh, enjoying the blood of Jesus that forgives us and cleanses us, and that as he stands and delivers week by week and as he pastors and as uh, he's a husband and uh, has a family, Lord, that he is overwhelmed with grace and mercy that it's just so on his radar that it just fuels him i want to pray that it just gushes over onto a a people that that people will not um, have any other recourse than to share in the same sort of journey an emptying and refilling a um, conviction remorse and then repentance and then amazement with grace I want to pray that for this church. pray that you will guard us from ever having a spirit of competition with this church. But We pray for big things for this church, for your glory and for your namesake. I want pray the same thing for this people this morning. I pray that between last week and this week that you will see a people that are especially tuned in and convicted about our sin and our wretchedness, that we can sing and think such a, wor- such a worm as I sort of thoughts, but in the same breath that we can be amazed by the, um, the fact that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that we will respond as debtors, as wholehearted, reckless abandoned, um, full-on debtors. Lord, I pray that as an expression of that debt responding to that death, that you will find us putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Pray that you'll speak clearly to your people this morning, to their hearts, and that us together, we can respond in obedience and faith. Turn this time over to you for your glory, for your name's sake. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Two places we're going to be this morning is Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 5. I'm preaching from Romans chapter 8 but Galatians chapter 5 is going to help us expose that in some ways. So go to Romans 8 first, but keep your finger in Galatians 5 if you have a bookmark or something. Just be ready to move back and forth. I don't think I'm going to have you turn other places. I am going to share a few other passages, but if you're a, like sword drill uh, hero or something, then you might be able to go to those other places with me. We finished out the year 2008 with two sermons on the godness of Jesus. What we considered in these last two Sundays in 2008 was that Jesus said, you believe in God, believe also in me. Is the gravity of that also, that Jesus wasn't just a teacher, but he was the teacher, the alpha teacher, the, um, the God teacher, the God man. And this last Sunday and, this, and today, I think, are an appropriate response to where we went at the end of 2008. The last two Sundays in 2008 were perfect preparation for the last week and this week. And if you disconnect last week, the godness of Jesus, and what I would say worship and wonder with response, then you can find yourself neck deep in Christless Christianity. Some of you may know what I'm talking about when I say Christless Christianity. Where you got your religion on, but you have no joy and no worship and no wonder. You have no faith You just have a list of rules, do's and don'ts, and you're ripping each other's heads off trying to stay tidy in your little tidy, sin-managed lives, but they have no faith and no worship and no wonder. So if you separate the godness of Jesus and worship and wonder from an appropriate response, that's what you can end up with. But hopefully they go together and we find that worship and wonder actually fuels an appropriate response. So that's where we're going last Sunday, this Sunday, and I think it's going to be a theme this year, John 14, a passage that Scott shared this morning, John 14 has throughout, it's kind of this theme of the chapter that equates love of Christ with obedience of Christ. If you say you love Jesus, but there is no expression of obedience, and there is no journey of sin killing in your life, then according to my Bible, you don't. You may love the thought of him. You may even acknowledge him, but if it has no purchase, it has no expression. then it's empty words. So today, I think as a year, or to kind of inaugurate and christen the year 2009, it's appropriate for us to christen this year what uh, the year that I think will be what we'll call the year of obedience. The last two years have kind of been the year of shepherding. And while the shepherding continues, we say there are two years of obedience, or two years of shepherding. The shepherding continues. This year, I think, is going to be a focus on obedience, and then the obedience will continue. But it is a focus this year, a theme of loving obedience and obedience that loves. So, Romans chapter 8 is a great place for us to go. Beginning in verse 1, we're going to focus on verse 13. But just for the sake of context, I'm going to begin in verse 1 and read through 13. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes. Anybody else want to raise their hand at man. Yes, sir, Chad, thank you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but are in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life... (coughs) Because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, big old fat, so then. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not earners. We are Debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The passage we're focusing on this morning and it's kind of christening our year is the passage, verse 13 I just read. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. What I want you to appreciate, I shared this at the beginning of the sermon last week, but it's something that we've got to get our hands around, is that this was written by Paul, by God ultimately, through Paul to a church. This wasn't a tent revival. Where he's sowing this message a bunch of of people that are non-believers and supposed believers maybe. It's not an evangelistic message. This is a message to the professing believers. The people who are hearing this message have those little laminated cross point, kids point cards in their pockets with their kids' names on them. They have the little sign in the kids' room, don't give Johnny peanuts because he's allergic. They're Johnny. This is written to a church, and realize the gravity of what he's saying. Church people professing believers, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. He's writing to professing believers. The reason this makes me swallow hard is because I realize the people that I've walked with, maybe people that I've spent the last five years pastoring along with the other elders, maybe even people that I have baptized will be on the receiving end of this death. This arrests me, and it makes me to where I just can't, okay, well, let's just get our sermon on. Mm -hmm. Let's have church. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It makes me swallow hard because I realize that some of you, and maybe even me, I wonder how many preachers are in hell. Because they preached it, and because they preached it, they thought they lived it. And because you've heard it, you thought you'd lived it. But you never lived it. I wonder how many preachers are in hell. I wonder how many God's people professing, excuse me, God's people who have laminated cards in their pockets are now languishing in eternal punishment. How many? I start the sermon out this morning with that because I want you to swallow hard with me. And realize this preacher is swallowing hard with you. As I engage this, I ask the question, because I preached it, am I living it? Does it find purchase in me? Is it an expression coming through me? This may challenge your assurance of salvation. I'll address assurance later. It's funny how often that comes up. I'm going to address that later in the sermon, but... Before we really climb into it, what I want to say right up front is that this is not a conditional statement. It looks like a conditional statement. It looks like an if-then statement. If you live according to the flesh, then you will die. If you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. It's not an if-then conditional statement. It's a statement of association and certainty. What that means is is that the dying live according to the flesh. Period. Period. That's just who they are. It doesn't make them the dead. It's characteristic of the dead that they live according to the flesh. And what's characteristic of the living is that we are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. It's just who we are. It doesn't make you living. As we read earlier, it's in response to living. It's a deading, a responding as a debtor. We know that salvation is a free gift. Just a few chapters earlier, Paul said this in Romans 6.23. He said, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you that it's a free gift and that we respond as debtors, not earners. Because you can't earn it. But you can and should respond. And those who are His will respond as debtors. And the way they'll respond as we're engaging today is that they will be about the work of putting to death the deeds of the flesh. He's describing our responsibility as debtors. I want you to see it in verse 12. Remember that so then that I engaged because it's so important. So then, brothers, we are debtors to the flesh, or excuse me, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We are debtors instead to put to death the deeds of the body. We're debtors, why? Go back to verse 1. Because there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why we're debtors, as we all raise our imaginary hands. We don't want to get too charismatic. <laughs> That's why we're debtors. We're debtors because the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. We're debtors because God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. That's why we're debtors. We're debtors because He sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh. That's why we're debtors. You've got to get the motive right. That's why I said right up front, thank goodness we had two weeks of the Godness of Jesus before we engage these couple of sermons, because if your motive is wrong, it's called sin. (laughs) You can do good things with the wrong motive, and guess what it's called? Sin. But as debtors, we respond by putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Last week, we considered what's true of the dying. We're not going to go into depth here. I just want to say real briefly What was true that we learned of the dying last week is that they're made of flesh. I hope you're making the connection for the living, too, in a moment. They're made of flesh that has passions and desires. We saw that in Galatians 5. They're made of flesh that has passions and desires. And these passions and desires are always present. Not just sometimes. I mean, when I say always, I mean always. Always. Even Paul said, man, evil lies close at hand. It's just right under the surface. If you're wearing the same thing I'm wearing, then we share this characteristic with the dying. Flesh. Passions and desires that live close at hand. But what's true of the dying is that they actually live by those passions and desires. Those passions and desires in the dying prompt them. They steer them. They guide them to their own ruin. Those passions and desires fuel them. They live by them and they die by them. While their laminated kid point card sits in their pockets. Please take in the gravity of that. That in earshot right now, I'm speaking to maybe both people, the dying and the living. If Paul wrote this letter to a church, then I hope everybody's swallowing hard going, oh man, wow, I better pay attention. But the living, the dying live by those passions, but the living, on the other hand, with the same desires and passions as the dying are about the work of putting to death the works and the misdeeds of the body. You've got to see that the living have the very same passions and desires as the dying. You've got to make that connection, because if you don't make that connection, you can't get the rest of this, because we have the very same flesh. We have the very same tendencies and desires. But the living are different in that they are not ravaged by the works and the deeds and the expressions of those passions and desires. It's very different. In the living, because the living are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Here's a picture, an image of that. That Greek word for putting to death is expressed over here in 1 Peter. If you're a sword drill guy, go for it. 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. But made alive in the Spirit. That's the same word that's used over here in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. We're putting to death the deeds of the flesh just like our Savior was put to death. That sounds pretty aggressive. A few weeks ago, I shared some of the details, some of the gruesome work of the cross. How terrible that work was. Imagine that terrible crucifixion on the sin in your life. That's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about just kind of nudging it. Poking, at it, poking fun at it, you know, like a Facebook poke. I'm sending you a poke. Oop. We're crucifying it. The living are putting it to death. What you've got to appreciate, you've got to make this connection that you can't kill the passions and desires. You can't kill those until you die, and someday you get a new body. This side of glory, you will always have the passions and desires. It was about eight years ago that I quit dipping Copenhagen. And I want to tell you right now that I am, present tense, a full-fledged Copenhagen-holic. I love it. I love it. Those passions and desires are in me. I gave most of my life to Copenhagen. A can a day is about what I dipped for most of my life, up to about eight years ago. Now, I'm not saying all Copenhagen and all dippers are sinful but this sinful, this dude was, because it owned me, and I was convicted about it. Not only the expense, but the danger it was to my health, and the fact that I couldn't do without it. It was sin for me. And you know what? The reality is, I can never kill the passion or desire for more Copenhagen. Every time I walk in to get it quick, guess what I'm doing? I'm so thankful that eight years ago was about the time, maybe, where they started doing those pay-at-the-pump where I could actually pay at the pump and not have to go in there and check out all the new flavors of Copenhagen? Oh, I never got to try that one. <laughs> don't think that when i do go in to get it quick now that my eyes aren't going, Copenhagen, mmm, Cop- chocolate donut, sort of Copenhagen. Because the passions and desires will always be there. My flesh will always want more of that. The propensities, the weaknesses, the tendencies, the inclinations, the predispositions, the hunger will always be there for evil lies close at hand. Remember what Paul said. It will always lie close at hand. My example that I used just now was Copenhagen. But please, take your own example. It may be shopping. Some of you may shop to medicate. Man, I'm down in the dumps today. <laughs> i need to go buy something you wonder why i know what that looks like because i am made of the same flesh you're made of i had not bought anything in a while <laughs> let me go buy something that make me happy you won't make that connection but if you think about it you're happier after you bought it it might be shopping it might be eating we might be food medicated people then when we're down and out, we medicate with food, we may medicate with shopping, we may medicate with gossip, criticism, sensuality, lust. Whatever those things, those passions and desires will always be there. When you're down and out, you will never not have those passions and desires. They will always be there. While you can't kill the passions and desires, however... You can kill and, in fact, crucify the works and the deeds and the expressions of those ever-present passions and desires. And if you're the living, you'll be about that work, according to Romans 8.13. It's just what the living do. You can't kill the passions and desires, but the living will be about crucifying that medication that we so easily seek. What I want to do in these next few minutes, if, if we can do that, I want to respond to this itch that we've created between last week and this week. I, I had a lot of conversation with people over the course of this week where they said, man, this sermon this last week really convicted me, man. It really messed me up. And I want to tell you, it convicted me too. And all week long, I've been eager for that itch that it created in me to be scratched. Now, I know how it's going to be scratched because I've been studying it all week long. But I want to give you the goods to scratch that itch. And that's what we're going to deal with in the next few minutes. You've recognized that it's characteristic of the living that we're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. How do we do that? Three things. First of all, in Romans 8, 13, it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, put to death in that phrase, in the original language, you can see it in, in the English language too, is present tense. That may seem like a small deal. Okay, well, so what? It means that it goes on daily. It means that it's going on right now. There's no passion or desire in your life and no past sin that you can put a check in the block and say, Okay, done. I got that taken care of. Copenhagen, never to be bothered again. It means it's ongoing, it's daily. It goes on today, tomorrow, next week, and the week after that. You can't take a break from putting to death the deeds of the flesh because the desires and the passions of the flesh, they don't take a break. They never sleep. John Owen said of the flesh, he said, it's like a grave that's never satisfied. It marches on whether you do or not. Remember, Paul said evil lies close at hand. And the reason it lies close at hand, because we are wearing those passions and desires. Those will never go away. They will never tire. They will never surrender. So the living, those who are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, are doing it daily. This summer, uh, my family and I went on on a trip, part of our sabbatical we were on the road for a month and since we were traveling so much I think we covered 6,000 miles in this month in our little minivan and we didn't choke each other it's amazing well, but before we left I got one of those little gps units you know I have a gps unit bad those things are bad well you put them on your dash right there and you tell it where you want to go if you have waypoints you know little pl- plates you want to stop in on the way you just plug those in and it'll just tell you turn by turn how do you get there one of the things that, that, I mean, it was really handy, but one thing that was really frustrating for me was the fact that it would give you a destination time. I thought this was kind of cool at the beginning. You know, you get in like a 12- or 13-hour day. You get in, in in the morning, you know, and you crank your car, and you set it all in. Christy sticks it to the, to the windshield, and I'm looking at that bad boy. Okay, man, we're going to travel so far during the day, and it'll give you a destination time, say, of 9 p.m. i ah, like, oh, cool, we'll be there by bedtime tonight. Nice. So we get on the road, and man, this thing's amazing. The, re- the way it does that, it factors in, in like traffic issues, it factors in construction, it factors in legal tra- travel speeds and all these sort of things, and gives you an estimated arrival time. But the only problem with this little GPS unit, the thing that was frustrating for me, is it didn't factor in lunch stops. It didn't factor in bathroom stops or gas stops or souvenirs at Stuckey's stops. It didn't factor in, hey, I need to grab something out of the back, stop, and there's no way I can climb over the mountain of luggage to get to it, so we got to stop. This GPS unit was sweet, but every time we had to stop, I watched that arrival time, newly recalculated, move further and further away from the projected time, and it drove me crazy. (laughs) You know, 9 p.m. becomes 9.18 in what seemed like a two-second stop. And then we stopped for lunch, and it's like, 9.48, 9.48, and then it's like 10, 12, one stop after another. So what I tried to do, I tried to make up for it on the road. I'm like, man, it's me and you, GPS unit. It's you against me, and it's on, boy. If I got behind somebody slow, I'm getting around them. I mean, if the kids need to stop, I'm like, can you hold it? Those cramps will go away. That blood will stop just to apply direct pressure. I mean, it's on. It's me in that unit. And I'm thinking, man, I'm going to regain that time. So I'm driving like, not like Jeff Collins used to drive, but I, I mean, I'm pushing the envelope, you know, and, and I'm sweating. And after a, an hour of that, sweating and racing around people and barking at people, I look from instead of 9.20, it's now 9.19. I'm like, man, that is just unbelievable. I'm wearing myself out trying to regain that time, trying to redeem that time that was so easily given up. And what I realized is I had a month-long illustration of Ephesians 5, 16, where Paul says to make the most of your time because the days are evil, because they march on whether you are or not. And the minutes click off, whether you're redeeming them and paying attention to them. Or not. I realize it's easier to give up time than it is to gain it. I realize that the same is true as the mortification of sin. It's easier to eat whatever I want for three whole weeks, make it the whole month of December when my birthday begins, and when Christmas and New Year's end, it's easier to eat whatever I want than it is to exercise for even a couple of days and to eat right for just a couple of days. It's a whole lot easier to give myself to the Stucky Stops the pecan rolls. Anybody buy those things? To the, i got to grab something out of the back. What I realize is, is weight is easier gained than lost. Money is easier spent than saved. Time is easier wasted than redeemed. And ground is easier given up than it is regained in the work of the mortification of sin. It's easy to just give it over. So the best approach is to not give up ground in the first place. The best approach is to assassinate the potential for sin daily, crucifying these little little seeds, these little seeds that sprout daily, murdering sin daily to be vigilant, attentive, aware, engaged, locked and loaded, ready to locate and dis- close with and destroy the works of the flesh the minute they come up. Not like once a month. Not like just when they really get bad. Daily staying on top of it. It's like gardening. A few months ago, we started on Wednesday nights going through the book of Genesis. And one of the things I appreciated in teaching through the first couple chapters is that God made Adam to be a gardener and to tend the garden. And that when Adam fell, Adam was kicked out of the garden along with Eve. And that through the work of Christ, that many ways the believers are returned to that garden-like relationship with the living God. So in many ways, we are returned to that original work of gardening. It's a different sort of gardening because it's sort of a spiritual gardening. So we can think about the gardeners around us, those who are really good at gardening, that have a beautiful garden. They're about that work daily. They're pulling weeds daily. They're watering. They're fertilizing. They're planting bulbs daily. You just see them always out there just kind of fiddling around. tooling around. It's a daily thing where they're in the garden But it's the people who give their yards to the weeds 11 months out of the year that will never have a beautiful garden. You can't play catch-up gardener. Gardeners stay on top of it. It's a daily work, just like the work of mortification of sin. It's a daily work. It's a present tense verb. And realize you will never be able to put a check in any block in your life. Put a check in that block and find out how fast it rears its ugly head and eats your lunch. You will never be able to put a check in that block because the relentless passions and desires lie close at hand. Just like Copenhagen at the get it quick, I could almost throw a rock and hit all the Copenhagen I could dip. They always lie close at hand, like the catalogs that are stuffed in your mailbox. Medication that we run to always lies close at hand. Like the trail mix in the pantry. Like the homemade granola that thankfully we've run out of. Sits in the kitchen calling, Ben, come eat me. It always lies close at hand. Like the weeds that sprout in the garden. But the daily gardener can and does pull weeds daily. I know that's redundant. The daily gardener can and does pull weeds daily. Mortification of sin is a daily venture. It's not something that you're about just every now and again. second thing is it is done by the Spirit. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. The difference between that first phrase and the second phrase is by the Spirit. The living are about the daily, daily work of murdering sin by the the Spirit. Let me say what this isn't before I explain what this is. Putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit, first of all, isn't killing sin or trying to kill sin godlessly. It is not the godless pursuit of dealing with your sin, again, redundant, apart from God. That is not doing this by God. The Spirit. Romans 14 23 says, Anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. An example for me in this place where I go, you know, I kind of look at things through the lens of my experience, through the Word, obviously, but bouncing it off my experience. And my mind immediately went to the, I bet I've lost a thousand pounds in my life. Not all at once. But I lost it, then gained it back. Lost it, gained it. The roller coaster, anybody else know the roller coaster? Anybody else know that roller coaster? I bet I've lost a thousand pounds in my life, and most of those pounds have been on my in and in my own efforts with the help of NutriSystem, Weight Watchers, or some other tool. Dealing with my gluttony godlessly meant I looked to those tools in place of God to help me, but yet the sin is never dealt with. It's just camouflaged or concealed or it's thinner. <laughs> It's disguised. It doesn't look the same, but it's still there. It's never been dealt with. Where I'm landing now, through studies like we're going through right now, where I'm landing now is that it's okay to use those helps. Nothing wicked about System. <laughs> it's okay to use those helps and those tools, but you've got to rely on the God of the help. The God of that tool to help you murder those works of the flesh. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes said it. He said, who can eat or find enjoyment without God? Man, systems they got got pretty good food, but I'm still not going to find enjoyment without God. I'm going to ride the roller coaster. My best bet, my only hope, is to do this in the Spirit. Murdering the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit is not doing it in your own power with God as an afterthought. God has got to be the very heir of the work. Here's how it works. Turn to Galatians. I told you we were going to go there. Go Galatians chapter 5. Here's how it works. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. We, We engaged that last week. The desires of the flesh are against the Spirit... And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. What I want you to appreciate is just as the lusts and the desires and the passions of the flesh are against the Spirit. Here's the beauty. The Spirit is against those lusts. In the work of the living, the Spirit is ready and able and engaged against those very lusts those things that we all have the dying they don't have that inner gladiator do you realize that that's why they're doomed they don't have the inner gladiator that you and I have and here's how we mobilize that inner gladiator it's right here in the same chapter look in verse 16 verse 16 says but i say paul says walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh walk by the Spirit. For them in this context, walking, it was an idiom. It was a Jewish idiom that had to do with dailyness. It's like breathing. Any of you that lived in a foreign country where there's no public or where you don't where you don't own a car, <laughs> where you have to walk everywhere, you know that walking is like breathing. It's something you do all day, every day. And that you are walking by the Spirit means that it's like you are breathing in the Spirit daily. It's a daily engagement. Going back to that last point. Here's the second thing. Look in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now, in the original language, that's a different word than is over here in verse 16. It's translated walk by the Spirit, but really what it is in the original language is stay in step with the Spirit. We're going to walk by the Spirit, and we're going to stay in step with the Spirit. I remember when I first went to A&M, I was in the Cadet Corps at Texas A&M as a freshman learning how to march. And you're like, man, I don't even know how my arms work anymore. You're like bear walking and stuff. You're so focused on how do I do this. And you're trying to stay in step with everybody, and you're like watching them. Okay, i got to try and stay. And you're, you're attentive to the steps that they're in so that you can get in step with them. That's what this means, that we walk by the Spirit. means that we are staying in step with the Spirit. It means that we are involved in the daily rhythm of the Spirit. Here's the next thing. Remember, if you're sword drill guy, go for it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. It says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. A couple of ways that we enable and mobilize the inner gladiator that we have to engage these sins is that we set our minds on things above, not on things on the earth. Do you think that you can saturate your mind with catalogs and trips to the mall and gobs of time in the kitchen and not succumb to those things that those passions and desires that are always there? If I'm setting my mind on trail mix, I'm done. That's what's kind of been hard about preaching about this. If I'm setting my mind on all these things that I'm so easily given to, I'm toast. If you're one that's given to shopping and you're looking at catalogs all day, guess what? You're setting your mind on catalogs. You're not setting your mind on things above. But Paul says, think upward. Look at the page before on Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence... If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So how are we mobilizing this inner gladiator? Well, first of all, we're walking with him. We're staying in step with him. We're setting our minds on his sort of things, and we're thinking about those sort of things. We're dwelling on him. We're focused on him. We're inundated with God's sort of things. The pure things, the commendable things, the just things, the honorable things, the true things, the excellent things, the worthy things, those are the things that we're inundated with. We're consumed with him. That's how we're mobilizing this inner gladiator. Go back to Galatians chapter 6. This is so good. This is so good. I know, you know, I know this sermon's kind of challenging, kind of, complicated, but please engage this, living. Please engage this, those with laminated cards in your pockets that have your kids' names on them, please engage this. And look at this passage in Galatians chapter 6. Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap Eternal life. I love the image of sowing. It just fits with the gardening picture. And this is what it seems like when you're sowing to the flesh. It seems like tiny little seeds. Ah, oh, what's wrong with looking at this catalog? Oh, it's just a seed. What's wrong with watching this TV show and this commercial? What's wrong with having this little bitty tiny snack along with the 18 other seeds that I'm going to eat today? What's wrong with this tiny little trip to the mall? What's wrong with this few minutes on the web surfing What's wrong with these tiny little things that I'm going to entertain myself with, these images that I'm going to put into my head? These are not innocuous, people of God. They're not harmless. If we sow to those things, you will reap those things. If your catalogs get more time than this, you'll reap that same thing, that same passion and desire that you're already given to. If your kitchen gets more time than this, guess what? God will not be mocked. He says the living, though, are sowing to the Spirit. And just like those other things seem tiny, they're just seeds. The same is true over here. They seem tiny. They're just seeds. Tiny seeds of thought, action, attention, conversation. Tiny little teachings on Wednesday night. Tiny little Sunday morning sermons. It's just a seed. Tiny little times together in corporate worship. Hmm. It's just a seed. Those tiny little seeds, they saturate the air around the believer like a cloud of seeds that's cast out on there on the field and sown in the direction of that inner gladiator where he can get some. He can engage that sin in your life. Man, what the people of God have got to realize that there is a war raging and waging within us where there are two gladiators on the field if you're believing. One gladiator is that flesh, and that homeboy don't sleep. He does not sleep. The other gladiator is the Holy Spirit. And this one, this one, we can mobilize by staying in step with him, by walking with him, by setting our minds on his sort of things, by thinking about his sort of things, by sowing to him. We can mobilize that gladiator what he can get after it. Listen to these words from John Owen. He said, It is the most unjust and unreasonable thing in the world when two combatants are engaged to bind one and keep him from doing his utmost and to leave the other at liberty to wound him at his, as its pleasure. It's the most foolish thing in the world to bind him who fights for our eternal condition and to let him alone who seeks And violently attempts our everlasting ruin. See, the contest, he says, is for our lives and for our souls. While this war (coughs) rages, while your passions that I'm telling you you've got, those passions and desires, while they rage, what do you think will happen when you bind the Holy Spirit? What do you think will happen when you continue to sow the seeds of flesh? What do you think will happen when you neglect the gathering of God's people? What do you think will happen when you have no use for the teaching and preaching of God's Word? I don't need it. What do you think you're doing when you keep sin hidden and private and you get your fake on? Man, I know what it looks like because I can do it too. I can fake it, man. Oh, man, it's good. How you doing? Oh, it's good. On the inside, you're dying. Your marriage is in shambles. Your life is in shambles. You're given over to lust or whatever. Insert X. But you can fake it. What do you think you're doing? You're binding the Holy Spirit. A strong man sitting there with his arms tied behind his back, you are quenching the Holy Spirit. What do you think you're doing when you neglect the table of the teaching and preaching of his word? That's what you're doing when you run from the things of God. You're avoiding the very means that he uses to liberate you. You can't even hope to walk with the Spirit, to stay in step with the Spirit, to think on things above, to think about the true and the honorable and just and the pure and the lovely and commendable and excellent, because you don't even know what they are. As the flesh wages war, present tense, with us, every last one of us, we, present tense, walk with, stay in step with, set our minds on, and occupy our thoughts with Holy Spirit things. This is how we put to death sin. We do it daily, and we do it by the Spirit. And the last thing is we do it with other people. Romans chapter 8, verse 13, the passage that we're focused on this morning, it's a plural you. You don't have to go by there, I'll read it. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You putting to death the deeds of the body and you living are plural words. And in fact, all the things we just engaged, walking with, staying in step with, setting your minds on, occupying your thoughts with, every single one of those are plural. You might be thinking, well, of course they're plural. They're written in more than one person. But the plurality of those words connects with James 5.16 that says, If you confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you will be healed. It's a command, in fact. He said it's an imperative. He says, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that, in order that, you may be healed. Do you think you can be healed from sin apart from that? Apart from one another? Not according to my Bible. God will not be mocked. And that's His design. As people of light, we drag our sin into the light when we do this when we escort other people that we can trust into our sin we're dragging that sin into the light it feels like you're dragging a friend into your darkness but really what you're doing is you're dragging your sin into the light where it can be reckoned with as people of light deal with it together as we confess our sins one to another, we will be healed. The words of Martin Lloyd-Jones talking about this, he says, well, here's what we do with sin. We pull it out, we denounce it, and we hate it for what it is. You can't pull it out without a one another involved. And in fact, the best case scenario is you've got a few one another's that you can trust that are walking with you. This is very, very unlike the world. Remember the story of Cain and Abel. Or Cain kills Abel, and God comes to Cain and says, "Where's your brother?" And he says, "What? <gasps> Am I my brother's keeper?" That's the mindset of the world. Remember that came from murderer, a lying murderer. At that, the people of God are our brother's keeper. We are about the work of helping each other through sin. Ecclesiastes 4.9, I'll read it to you real quick. It says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. The people of God should never be alone. In fact, if you're part of the people of God, you won't be. And if you're authentic and you're genuine and you're true with other people, they will know when you're fallen. And they'll come grab you by the arm and say, man, let me help you up, dude. You don't have to waller in that. I know because I used to waller in it. But I confess my sins one to another and I'm healed. See, the issue is this is not meddling. I know this may feel like meddling. In the eyes of the world, when the world is doing it, it is called meddling. But... When the people of God are doing it, it's not meddling. It's what we are to be about. Paul, when he was describing what his role is in the church, he says, Him we proclaim. Listen to this. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the motive of this work, this presentation when Christ returns. That's why we're involved in each other's lives, helping each other get up and helping each other work through sin and helping each other put sin to death because Christ is coming back and the presentability of the bride is at stake. That's the motive. Feels like meddling if that's not the motive, but you got to understand for the people of God, that's got to be the motive. Presentability of the bride. David... Whenever he sinned with Bathsheba and had Uriah, the Hittite killed. It was very private initially, that sin. But a man named Nathan came to him and shared a parable with him. And he said, you are that man, David. And then it became a one another sort of thing. And then you may remember how David responded. He wrote a psalm. A public psalm. Psalm 51, for all of the people, nation of Israel, to sing. He pulled his trash out into the light. He denounced it, and he hated it publicly. That's what the people of God are to be about. And here's the beauty. When you do that, grace and mercy and movement are on display when others are are involved. If I share my sin with you and I share with you here on the turning of 2008 to 2009 of my tendency toward gluttony, toward with, of my tendency toward fits of anger, of my tendency toward materialism, if I share those things with you and if some of you might man- manage to stick around for the next five years and if I'm still authentic and genuine and I'm still open and honest about who I am, first of all, I'm going to look really small when I do those things. That's how I feel. But if you stick around for five years, maybe even a year in some of those things, and you see movement, and guess what? I still look small because I'm dealing with the next problem then. But who looks big? God looks huge. God gets the glory. If we're authentic and genuine and straight shooting with each other, and we're confessing our sins to one another and things change and you see movement, You want to keep things private. First of all, you're not going to see movement. But if by chance you think you might have God's glory is not on display. It's got to be dragged out publicly. Dragged out publicly. This God glorifying movement is only enjoyed if it's shared with one another. Or I make you this promise: you can keep your sin to yourself and let it ravage you. You can keep it to yourself and let it ravage you. It may leave you alone once you're completely spent, but knowing, that, knowing Satan, knowing that he has no mercy, it probably won't leave you alone. It will just continue and continue because the flesh is relentless and marches on. The living put to death the misdeeds of the body daily by the Spirit And with the help of some one another's. That's just what we do. We're engaged in new battles in 2009, I hope. John Owen, I shared this quote at the end of the sermon last week. John Owen said, To kill sin is the work of living men. To kill sin is the work of living men. When men are dead, sin is alive and will live. So I hope You're fighting in 2009 because it's the work of the living. I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon about assurance. You need assurance of salvation? I'll give you a a tip on assurance of salvation. You can look at the front of your Bible where your pastor signed when you were baptized. Nothing wrong with that, but that's not where your assurance comes from. At least in this regard, evidence of the living is that they're on the battlefield. They're bloodied. They're embattled saints. They're dirty. They're authentic. They're genuine. They're daily dragging stuff into the light. You want assurance of salvation? Are you bloodied? Are you fighting sin in your life? Are you enabling the Holy Spirit to do His gladiator work? Or is sin sitting unthreatened, unopposed, quite at ease in you? Quite easily justified too. Ah, it's just the way I'm wired. Ah, it's my genetics. Ah, I'm Irish. <laughs> Is the Spirit mobilized daily, free, and enabled to engage the passions and desires of the flesh? Are you pulling it out, denouncing it, hating it, by the work of the Spirit, choking it? Is it sometimes winning? But tomorrow morning re engaged? That's a good sign that you're living. If you're fighting, then it means you're alive. The question that I have for, for you is a question I've had for my family these last couple of weeks. The question I've had for myself, i put it to you. Is because of the cross, because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of the cross, I want to engage by the work of the Spirit in my life, blank, You know what my trash is. Shepherds, do you know what your family needs to engage this year? Are you praying for your family for those areas that by the work of the Spirit you need to engage and do battle with this year? That's your job, shepherds. It's your job to have something on your own radar. But it's also your job to escort your family into that important question. Because of the cross in 2009, by the work of the Spirit, I want to engage blank because that's characteristic of the living. That's what we're supposed to be about. Let me pray. God, I'm so scared, so scared that we can just engage this and talk about it and think we've lived it and yet go on living according to the flesh. I'm scared, this, scared to death of this in myself. I know how easily it is or how easy it is and how easily I give into those passions and desires of the flesh. And Lord, I pray for movement this year like a garden. I pray that January 1st, 2010 looks different Than January 1st of 2009 did. Because you're at work in me. I pray that for this people. I pray that we find our assurance in that daily battle. Lord, I pray that we can do that together in community. I pray that we can do it daily. Not trying to play catch up with the GPS. But that we're staying in front of it and on it together. Lord, I pray for shepherds, that shepherds wrote that phrase down or at least thought that phrase in their head this morning. Because of the cross, because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we want to, by the Spirit, engage blank. Lord, please, please arrest us with the need to respond to this cross where it finds purchase and expression on Tuesday, and Thursday, and in our checkbook, and in our kitchen. Lord, I beg for this personally. I beg for this on behalf of my family, and I beg for this on behalf of this people. We are praying these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's worship and song. I've been uh, sort of nervous about these last couple of Sundays. I'm even just kind of nervous right now where that hit people because I realize that God's glory is at stake in what happens with this. If I'm just here preaching just to get my check in the block that I've preached it, but it finds no purchase, backups, if it finds no purchase, then God's glory is at stake in my home. My kids know these things. It might be new to you. The gluttony and things like that are a challenge for me. My kids and my wife know this. If they see no movement, if I'm just a preacher, but not a liver and an obeyer, it's God's glory at stake. Then it's just something we talk about. We sing about it. We talk about it. But if it has no purchase, it has no expression, it has no teeth, hair, eyes, tennis shoes, hands, trembling hands, if it has no movement, then God is not glorified in that. We're just acknowledging Him. The Demons already acknowledge Him people of God are supposed to be about this work. So I tremble as I preach it this morning, hoping that it finds purchase in my home. And hoping that people that know me best, Brad Cardwell, my wife, not in that order. <laughs> my kids that they see God on display as the sin in my life has put to death. I beg for that in y'all. I beg that we're not just fat collectors. Just collecting trivia this morning. Oh, I didn't know that about the Bible. <laughs> that's nifty. Ah, oh, That would be fun to talk about. But that it's actually wrecking us. It's actually finding some sort of expression. That that's why, why we're trembling. That's why we're grabbing each other and saying, man, I need your help with this. If this is true, and if God's people are supposed to be about this, I need some help. That's what church of God, or church this church, the people of God, are supposed to be about. What it makes is debtors who are humble, who are not easily wronged, realizing that we're all wrongers. (laughs) It makes a bunch of debtors that are not easily wrong, that are not critical, but that are needy and dependent and genuine and authentic. And as, as these debtors are growing downward in humility, as we learn more and more about our sorry, undeserving selves, that we're growing upward in worship and wonder, saying grace is unbelievable. I had no idea grace reached this low. We're truly amazed by grace. We've been singing about it for years. We'll truly be amazed about it. That's what it makes. It makes the people that are small in our own eyes, and it makes the people that are really sober. 1992, December of 1992, I landed in Somalia with 101 Marines and 18 Zodiac boats at about 4, 18 in the morning, something like that. About three hours before that, I gave the operation order, the five-paragraph order, letting them know what we were going to be doing in Somalia. And over the course of that next three hours, as we traveled in the 18 nautical miles or whatever it was, into the, the beach, there were people throwing up over the side of the boat because we knew we were going into harm's way and it was going to be hard and that it was real. We were sober. Man, the church of God, the people of God could do with some sobriety. Because the attorney's a long time. This isn't a club. This is the people on a very real journey. And when you think about what's at stake, man, we get real sober real quick. Wouldn't hurt somebody would throw up. Transition, kind of a weird transition. Scott and Lori, come on up here <laughs> with your kids. It's a weird, weird transition, but it's not a weird transition. This is Scott and Lori McCullough. As they're coming up here, what they're coming up here for is to express their desire to stand in membership with this stand in agreement as members with this body. Sorry for the transition from throw up. That was a weird <laughs> weird don't throw up up here, yeah. now, the reason I think it's a cool transition though, is because you know, talking about the one another ship, the role that we have in each other's lives, of being on the journey together, that's what membership is. Do you have to be a member of a church to do that? Mm. I don't think it's like a, thou shalt become a member of a church. But we believe that membership is a quality commitment to one another where we're saying, I will be involved in your life in this way, Scott, as a fellow shepherd. Christy will be involved in your life in this way as a fellow teammate, a fellow worshiper in wonder, being about the sin-killing work. Because the presentability of the bride is at stake. Not as a meddler, but as a fellow needy, desperate, humble, lowly worshiper. Who saying, man, let's murder sin together. Let's be about this work together. That's what they're doing this morning. It's not a paper drill. It's not a collection of notches in your guns for how many members we have. I don't know how many members we have. It's about a quality commitment to say, I want to be searchable. I want to be known and I want to know I need teammates on this very real sober journey. Please. Let me communicate that I stand in agreement and I make this public presentation that I'm searchable with all of you. That's what membership is. Whatever it's become, let's not let what it's become in many settings reduce what it should be.